Miracles. Um, we are in a series that we have simply called Miracles, and uh, we believe that Jesus is still firmly in the business of doing the miraculous. Um, before we continue our series, hey, if there are still any fifth or sixth graders, um, feel free to head on out to 5.6 um, at this time. Your leaders will meet you in the back. Um, Jesus is still in the business of performing miracles. We believe that Jesus still loves to. Not only can he, but he loves to reverse the seemingly irreversible. Uh, Jesus loves to do the seemingly impossible. Jesus loves to remove the seemingly immovable obstacles, not just in a time long ago, but in our time. Not just in other people's lives, but in our lives. Not just in distant countries, but in our country, in our City. We believe Jesus loves to do the miraculous. Uh, but in this series, we are not saying we believe Jesus is going to do this particular miracle for you. More than that, we want to ask the question, what does it look like for us to live in a posture of being miracle ready? Because I believe that Jesus wants to do more miraculous things than we experience. And it's not because he doesn't want to do the miraculous, but because often we may not be positioned for the miraculous. We may not be living miracle ready. And so we want to look at a variety of different stories in the New Testament, miracle stories, and ask the question, what were some of the postures of the people in those stories? What was going on in the environment and in that place, in that time? that made that situation ripe for the miraculous. And if not for today, maybe the miracle we're going to need some months from now because we never know when we just might. If not for us, maybe for someone else in our world who could use the moving of seemingly immovable obstacles. But what does it look like for us to be in a position and in a posture of being miracle ready. This morning, we're going to look at a story in Luke chapter 17. So if you have a copy of the Bible, you can feel free to meet me there. Luke chapter 17, we are going to start reading at verse 11. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, the verses will be up here on the screen. Um, if you don't own a physical Bible, please give us an excuse to give you a Bible. We would love to get one into uh, your hands. And so at the end of the service, again, head to the connection corner and just ask for a, a copy of the scriptures and somebody will hand one to you. Um, Luke chapter 17, we're going to start reading at verse 11, and uh, we're going to pause and make observations again, as we customarily do, to, to get our, our bearings around this story. Um, verse 11. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, uh, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Uh, Samaria, land of the Samaritans. Galilee, land of the Jews. Now, it's no secret that the Samaritans and the Jews did not like each other. Let's be real. They hated each other. Uh, they were living in the reality of an age-old beef between them, generations and generations old. Uh, they all used to be part of one nation, and the nation split off. And uh, the Samaritans uh, started to intermarry with foreign nations, and they started to worship uh, foreign gods. And uh, the Jews found that to be spiritual, religious 
treachery. Um, at one point, there was some drama that was happening, and the Jews came to the Samaritans and said, hey, would you guys please help us? And the Samaritans were like, no thanks, we are not going to go with you, go to war with you, and that just exacerbated um, their tension, and on and on it went. And so the Jews considered the Samaritans to be religious traitors and national defectors and racial half-breeds because they had intermarried with those lesser nations and had polluted the pure line of God's holy people. Uh, they hated each other. In fact, the most direct route, if you're going from Galilee um, to Jerusalem, was to go through Samaria. That would be the most efficient way to go about it, but any self-respecting Jew would take the extra days worth of trip to go around Samaria just to avoid having any contact with those dogs, as they were called. Needless to say, it was beef. They did not like each other at all. So Jesus shows up, and um, Jesus just doesn't seem to care much about the sides. He just loved people, and as such, Jesus just walked wherever. But on this particular occasion, Luke tells us that Jesus was walking on a neutral road um, along the border between Samaria, land of the Samaritans, and Galilee, land of the Jews. Jesus was walking in this little common strip of space um, that neither the Jews owned nor did the Samaritans own. He was walking in this little divide between the two sworn enemies. And as he started to walk out of that common space, out of that divide into a village, the following takes place. Verse 12, Luke says, as he, Jesus, was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance, and they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Uh, leprosy was a, a really ugly disease that affected the, the nerve endings beneath the surface of the skin. It, it would often manifest itself in a variety of different ways. Uh, first, you would start to get sores, and these sores would eventually cover your body, and honestly, it wasn't necessarily pleasant to look at. But more than that, um, leprosy would cause its victim to lose a sense of feeling, to touch, particularly in the extremities of the body, which was bad news because it meant that if you stubbed your toe, you wouldn't feel it. And if you sliced your hand, you wouldn't feel it. And if you burned your thumbs, you wouldn't feel it. And so eventually people with leprosy would hurt themselves, wouldn't be aware of it, which would lead to infections. And for some of them, they would start to experience amputations in order to save themselves from things getting worse. And so if you ran into a, 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 a person who had suffered from lep rep leprosy for a while, you would notice that they were missing limbs or they were missing, you know, nose or they were missing, you know, other things and they were covered in sores. In fact, it was believed that leprosy caused the limbs on your body to fall off, but it was the infections and the fact that they couldn't feel it and things got worse and on and on it went. But leprosy was also an extremely misunderstood disease. It, it was believed to be extremely contagious on all occasions. Um, 
And so the common thought was that if you touch someone with leprosy, let alone come near them, um, that you ran the risk of getting leprosy, and then your limbs would fall off and your face would be covered with all kinds of unsightly sores. And so in order to keep themselves safe, the community put in place and enforced some pretty harsh laws um, against um, lepers. Number one, if you're a leper, you are not allowed to touch one of the healthy people in the community. You may not touch. In fact, we would prefer you stayed at a distance lest we get some of our leprosy on um, us. And so that was just one of uh, the rules. And th there were many of these um, rules. If you came near somebody who was clean and healthy and you were a leper, you had to announce yourself by yelling at the top of your voice, unclean, unclean. That way you gave them fair warning. They could get out of the way and they could completely avoid your leprous um, demise. Um, when someone was discovered to have had leprosy, when there seemed to be physical evidence that you had leprosy, the priest in the town of all people was the one who was responsible for sentencing them. And he would sentence them to exile. And he would tell them, you have to leave the city gates and live outside the walls. You are being banished from community because the rest of us don't want to a look at you b get this leprosy that you have so go live out there and if you were fortunate enough as a leper then you might find a colony of other lepers and you all would figure things out together if you disregarded the law and you did not shout unclean to give the rest of us fair warning or you snuck back into the city and put our kids at risk of getting leprosy, you ran the risk of being stoned to death and the community would be well within its rights to do so. Luke tells us that as Jesus is about to leave this common space, as he's about to leave this divide between the two sworn enemies. As Jesus is about to leave um, this strip here, that he is approached by 10 men with leprosy. As he's about to go into a, a village, 10 men with leprosy, they approach him and they do what the law requires. It says they stand at a distance, a, a powerful scene, by the way, as these uh, societal rejects um, who had been exiled and had no choice but to live outside the city walls in this common space, in this divide in which Jesus is now walking, um, this group that now lived in this place that no one owned, which was nice for them, by the way, because no one could kick them out. The Samaritans didn't own it. The Jews didn't own it. No one really owned it. So no one would bother them. And frankly, no one would bother with them in that common little space. And so while they're in their common space, in this divide that they've now called home, um, the craziest thing ever imaginable happens to them. And I can imagine they're like, are you kidding me? Jesus is here. Jesus is here in the divide. Jesus is here in this little common space that we call home. We, we've heard about him. 
We've heard about the power with which he's teaching in the villages. So we've just heard about it. We've heard about the ways that he is reversing the seemingly irreversible. We've heard about the ways that he is uh, making broken people like us whole by simply speaking the words. But he's been doing that in the villages. And, and now this, whoever dreamed the odds would be ever in our favor. And yet here we are in this unbelievable moment, because moments like this don't happen for people like us, but Jesus is in the divide. Jesus is in this common space. Never thought he would come to our home. And I can imagine uh, these guys dragging their, their frail bodies as fast as they could to cover as much ground as they can to get to Jesus as quickly as they can because it's the race against the clock. Because as Luke tells us, Jesus is walking into a village. And the minute Jesus goes into the village, he gets out of their reach because they can't come into the village. And so they are moving to try and keep pace and catch up with Jesus before he disappears. And they strain and they labor until eventually they're close enough to shout, but they're smart enough to stand far enough not to be stoned. And it says, they stand at a distance and they shout. And I love, love, love this. They, they choreographed their shout. I don't know who was the band leader among the 10, but, but they choreographed their shout because Luke goes out of his way to tell us that they shouted together. They shouted as one. They shouted in unity. They shouted in unison. One, two, three. Jesus, help us. Jesus, Help us. They do some choreography, and as they unite their voices, the volume raises, and as the volume raises, it reaches Jesus, and he, he stops. It was loud. It was coordinated. It was beautiful. Um, beautiful, and I'll tell you um, why. Because as we soon find out in the story, this 10-man crew was a little blended band of brokenness. I don't know if that was their little choreography group name. I don't know. But this was a little blended band of brokenness. As we read the story, we soon find out that it was a group made up of both Jews and Samaritans. Apparently, brokenness had brought them together, and they found unity in that divide. And now here they are in this beautiful, powerful scene. They are working together, and they could not care less about the beef and the drama of their great-grandparents. They are shouting together with one voice, completely unconcerned with the beef of their forefathers. They're just a bunch of broken people who found unity in that divide. They found commonality in that common space. And I wonder if we can't learn something about being miracle-ready from this Band of broken brothers. I wonder if this doesn't teach us the beauty of breaching the barrier. 
I wonder if being miracle ready doesn't mean learning to breach the barrier. Um, sometimes, um, what's keeping us from experiencing the miraculous is not a vertical problem. It's a horizontal one. We are not breaching barriers. Um, it's not so much a me and God issue as much as it is a me and the people who I'm choosing to keep beef with issue. It's me and the people with whom I create or maintain barriers, whether those are personal barriers or the religious barriers or, or the racial barriers or the national barriers or the, you know, political barriers. The point is you belong over there and I belong over there. You belong in your wall and I belong in my wall over here. Let's keep our worlds apart. And I get the sense, and if you read the scriptures, I think this will become more and more clear to us. That Jesus would say, well, you can keep your worlds apart, and you can also keep my miracles away. Because heaven seems to send miracles where people tend to remove obstacles. Where people tend to live in that common space, even if it's ever so slight. Where people tend to work to find unity in that divide, even if it's around just a few common things. That space where we're all just a band of broken people in different skin with different stories. And I would strongly suggest that the church should be the place with people who get that the most. I would venture to say the church should be the place that leads in this the most. In fact, I would venture to say the church should be that common place where beef and drama and differences come to die. And all of a sudden, it's just a bunch of us broken people saying, I'm no better than you, and you're not better than me, and, and we all just need Jesus quite desperately. So if you don't mind, and we can agree, then on the count of three, say Jesus with me, or something like that. See how I made a poem of some sort? But I honestly believe the church should be the place leading the way, creating common space, highlighting what makes us the same, not what should keep us apart. But nope, Calvinists are fighting with Arminians because of some beef our forefathers had in Europe somewhere. So you worship in that church, and we'll worship in this church if you don't mind. And then our kids wake up one morning, and they're like, why do we not go to that church? Why do we go to this church? <laughs> it's just beef. It's drama. Don't worry about it. You don't need to know. Just help us perpetuate the drama and help us keep the walls up. 
And Jesus just walks around it. And I'm not interested in any of that. Uh, now, let me be clear. I think one of these sides is wrong, and another of these sides is more right when it comes to some of those arguments. But I do not believe that should ever keep us from living in common space. We can disagree. But no, there are Democrats that are fighting the Republicans. And Jesus just walks around it. Hey, go ahead, keep your walls up and keep my miracles out. Because he tends to prefer places where broken people in different colors come together and say, we all need healing. We are all just messed up and together needs to run after Jesus. Come on, I know, I bet you some of those lepers were diehard like Chicago Cubs fans. And others of those lepers liked watching sports, so they didn't watch baseball, right? But, but I bet you, oh man, yeah, too far. But anyway, too far, I lost some friends on that one. But they figured out common space, and they raised one voice and worked together and ran after the person of Jesus. You want the miracle? I'm saying to you, start to take steps to breaching the barriers. Move towards common space, that space where our brokenness brings us together. And again, I think the church should be the primary place where that happens on earth. And can I just say, by the way, if you study how this beautiful story of redemption ends. It ends around the throne of Jesus with a bunch of people, different skin colors, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different political voting strategies, and yet they are all together around the throne of Jesus raising one voice to him, and God is saying, that's what my glory is wrapped up in. Can you imagine what happens when we on earth start to reverse the very thing that God says I'm moving towards, but bring the miraculous? Well, breach the barriers. Breach the barriers. Is, is there anyone you could not lock arms and pray with for a miracle? Is there a kind of person that you would not lock arms? Is there a kind of political personality that you would not be willing to lock arms with. And if you went down to the, the border, <laughs> who might you be prone to pray with and who might you say, I can't pray with you? Is there someone in your life, personally, nationally, you know, racially, whatever, that you would say, I couldn't lock arms with you. Is there anyone whose miracle you could not pray for? Someone at school? Someone in the family? Because that may be the obstacle to the miracle that only you can move.
It's a really interesting thing. This is one of the few things that only you can do. I've never heard of Jesus miraculously getting rid of your beef. Now, and then there was drama between us, and then Jesus, he just removed it, and now we get along. No, there are certain obstacles that only you can move. He won't. He invites you to move those obstacles. What might it look like to breach that barrier? Maybe it's a note to a person taking a step towards that common space called reconciliation. Maybe it's, it's confessing to someone about a group of people that you have held at a distance. Y'all stay over there. I don't want anything to do with you. Um, and you need to just come clean about that. Maybe Christmas for you ought to look different, where you rebel as a family and say, we have maintained the, we don't talk to this side of the family, and you don't talk to this side of the family, and we've tr now taught our kids, hey, just don't talk to that side of the family. It's an age-old beef. We've just maintained. Maybe this is a Christmas where you remove that obstacle and you breach the barrier. Wait, you sat with who at Christmas? You bought a gift for who this Christmas? We're breaching the barriers. It's what Jesus came to do. It doesn't mean you agree. It doesn't mean you say what happened was okay. It doesn't mean you do, you know, man, you feel safe around this person now. I may still stand at a distance, but I want to take steps to still being willing to shout with you. Who is a person Jesus might be calling you, hey, take a step towards breaching the barriers. I cannot tell you how anti-miraculous it is when we get on social media as the church and we rail against people. And we build these, you know, obstacles between us and them. When we start to talk like that, I am telling you we are distancing ourselves from heaven literally. Because heaven is a place called common space where I'm going to bring people together around the work of Jesus Christ and it's going to be one people, one voice. Different backgrounds, one voice. As we take steps in our personal lives towards that, we start to experience heavenly kinds of things because that's what heaven is like. What does that look like for you? So these broken guys from different sides of the barriers, they came together, um, and they cry out, and man, it, it's pretty, it's pretty beautiful. Um, united in their brokenness, they get Jesus' attention. Verse 14, when he, Jesus, saw them, he said, go, show yourself to the priest." That was Jesus' spiel, super profound. And as they went, they were cleansed. They shout at Jesus, and Jesus shouts back at them, go, show yourselves to the priest. Now, Luke um, doesn't tell us anything about how these guys felt about what Jesus said, but can you imagine hearing Jesus say to you, Go show yourself to the priest. You're like, um, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He's gone. Okay. Because um, um, isn't the priest the guy who exiled us? 
isn't the priest the dude who sentenced us to this fate? Isn't he the guy who is part of why we are where we are? And he's gone. Um, Isn't the priest in the city? And if we go in the city, we run the risk of being stoned to death because as far as we can tell, we've still got leprosy. This would have been a terrifying proposition. Jesus, can you, and he's gone. No further instructions, and sometimes Jesus does that to us, doesn't he? Can you tell us? No, no, okay. All right, guys, uh, what do you want to do? And so they do the most natural thing you can imagine. They start to go see the priest. They believe Jesus' word is worth risking their lives for. If he said it, we've got to stake our lives on it, which is what faith is, by the way. He said it, and we are leaning on his word, and so we're going to start going to see the priest. Um, And then this epic moment, one of my favorite new scenes in the Bible. Did you see that line, the second part? Look again, uh, Luke 17, the second part. And as they went, it says, (laughs) they were cleansed. (laughs) I love that. The Bible is the best. As they went, it says, they were healed. And we talked about this last week. As they made the move, They were cleansed. This is so awesome. As they they went, I imagine one of them is like, oh, guys. Oh, I am totally clear ceiling here. My skin has never looked better, guys. And another one is like, shut up. My thumbs are back. My thumbs are back. And another guy's like, ouch. No, guys, did you hear me? I said, ouch. I just stubbed my toe, and I totally felt it. And another guy's like, let me try. Ouch, this is awesome. It hurts so good. Ouch, it still hurts. And they start making fun of each other like, Cab, you always had a pointy nose like this. My nose is back. Yes, it's from my mother's side. Can you imagine as they are walking towards the priest? Because the word cleansed is a word that means that every single physical evidence of their leprosy was removed as they were walking. This had to have been an absolute trip. And I think in this powerful scene, we start to learn something else from these guys. Go see the priest. And by the way, um, it's so that when you get to the priest and he sees that there is no sign of leprosy on you, he will have no choice but to say you are formally reinstalled to community. Go and live your life. Hug your wife. Get a job. This is powerful. And I think it gives us another key to living miracle ready. Build what's yours. Build what's yours. Let me try and explain this. Uh, Last Saturday, um, I texted one of the smartest people that I know, uh, Josh Soulsgiver, because um, 
my family and I had a bit of an emergency. Don't worry, we're fine. Um, here's what happened. The wall uh, switch electrical um, outlet thingy um, that, <laughs> that controls the garbage disposal, um, it, it perished. And so we needed to, to get a new one. And so immediately I started to sweat because on account of the fact that I knew I was going to potentially be called to max out all of my electrical knowledge and handyman skills in one event. Um, so I was a little bit scared of that. So anyway, so we purchased uh, a new um, wall switch electrical switch thingy um, and uh, laid it on the, the kitchen counter um, just wrapped in plastic, just sitting there. And uh, while it sat there, I did, you know, just a couple of regular things. Like I got right with Jesus, you know, hugged my family, changed my will, um, just in case, just to be, just to be safe, um, I'm saying. And that thing just sat on the counter, just kind of taunting me, almost like I'm not going to change myself, you know. Um, so anyway, so I texted Josh, Josh, um, how do I not die? Send. Um, text bubbles. Uh, text comes back. Well, you might want to turn off the power. I'm like, okay, I can see that. And then I sent, you know, uh, another text to Josh saying, like, okay, I have unscrewed the plate. Send. Bubbles. Um, what do you see? Uh, I see my life and all of its mistakes flashing before my eyes. <laughs> Send, you know, <laughs> uh, flashing of any kind is not good when you're dealing with electricity. But anyway, um, I know you're sitting on the edge of your seats and you're wondering. So let me just put you out of your misery and let you know I did not die. Um, matter of fact, matter of fact, I actually successfully managed <laughs> to change um, that wall electrical um, um, outlet uh, thing, me, me jigger, whatever that thing is called. But um, because apparently it turns out that those things, they do not uh, self-install. You actually have to um, put them on. Anyway, as they went, is that where we were? As they went, they were... Healed. And I thought this was interesting. And it's almost as if, you know, from our, our conversation last week about making the move, it's almost as if the Lord wants to continue to, to re-emphasize this with some of us. Because sometimes, I wonder if he hasn't already purchased the miracle, and it's just sitting on our spiritual counter, wrapped in his word, staring at us and saying, I'm sorry, I'm not the kind of miracle that installs myself. You may actually have to build something. You may actually have to do, you may actually have to go see the priest. You may actually have a part to play in experiencing this particular Miracle. Somebody after the first service said to me, so it's kind of like an Ikea miracle. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> perfect. That is perfect. I think we know what the um, sermon title should be for this one. But I, I, I do. I believe there are some miracles that read 
some assembly required. You are going to have to build a bit. And I wonder how many of us have the miracle materials. We just haven't done the assembly. Seriously, I mean, what if he's already given you the miracle that that you've been praying for, you just haven't activated it? What if he's saying, I've already done my part, now do yours? Go see the priest. Start walking. Start giving. I've been talking to you about this for years, and you keep saying one day, well, it just sits on the counter. Stop eating sugar. Isn't it amazing, though, that sometimes it's really that? No, Jesus, heal my body. I have done something in your body. But the moment you actually do what the doctors have been telling you for 13 years, your part will meet my part and something is going to happen. Start exercising. (laughs) Your miracle is on the treadmill. (laughs) No, God, just fix my heart. And uh, uh, if you would just please pray for my heart. Like, I need to pray for your discipline on this one. He is going to do something beyond what you can imagine in your body. But you've got got to build something. You've you've got to start walking towards the, the priest. Cut out guy's night. It's been a problem in your marriage for years. And as you do that, you'll be surprised what I've placed in your marriage date nights. Huh? Some brothers like, Lord God, I'm ready. You know, but there are places where he's calling us to step in and play our part. Otherwise, it just sits around. Get foster care viable. We've talked about it for three years. You've talked about it. But both of you know that this is the instruction he gave you. This is the counsel you've been receiving, but you've not stepped into it. Go to counseling. I mentioned to um, the first service last week that um, I'm now the proud owner of a therapist. Um, I possess a therapist now. I own one. Um, but you should ask my wife, like, how long I felt like it would be really super healthy to process all of this leadership stuff and this adoption stuff and this life stuff with someone who has to listen to me. Um, I, I said that for a very long time, but I didn't do it. I had all kinds of reasons and excuses, and I knew this was healthy for me. I needed to take this step. Um, last time I spoke to said counselor, he asked me, how, how are things going? And I was like, um, um, really great, as a matter of fact. I don't even have anything to talk to you about right now. How's your life? How are you doing, sir? And only last night, as I was thinking about this, did it occur to me that things in my world shifted as I started to go to counseling. Not fun. 
God had given me a miracle that I had been praying for, but I only experienced it when I went to counseling. There are times I believe being miracle-ready means understanding the miracle's already ready and waiting on you. You just need to build. You need to go. You, you need to, to work. Because what happens if these guys don't go? to see the priest, they would have a miracle that they never got to enjoy. Because Jesus' word was good. His instruction was good. What he's been leading you to do is good. What he's been convicting you about is good. Will you Ikea the miracle? And then this emotional scene, verse 15, says, One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. That's awesome. One of these 10 guys who experienced the healing on the go sees that his stuff is clearing up and he makes a U-turn. It's like the priest can wait, but this praise cannot. And so he goes back and finds Jesus. But, oh, it's different now. Hey, excuse me. <laughs> Clean guy coming through. And he goes into the city. And it says he falls at Jesus' feet because I can touch people now. Excuse me. Oh, hey. And I can feel it too. Um, throws himself at Jesus' feet, and he thanks Jesus loudly and repeatedly. And he was a Samaritan, meaning he was the least likely of these guys to come back to Jesus because the Samaritans and the Jews had beef. And he didn't even seem to care that he was in a Jewish town at the time because I'll go anywhere to thank Jesus for what he has done. And this strikes a chord with Jesus, verse 17. And Jesus asked in a very disappointed tone, were not all ten cleansed? Because I know my word is good. Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. And again, you can hear the disappointment in Jesus' words. Did only one come back to praise me? Seriously? After what I've done, only one came back? And then he lets the question hang and reverberate through the ages and reaches in 2018. And then he says to him, well, since you came back to praise me in faith, I will do one more thing for you. Your faith has saved you. That's what this word means. You asked me for healing, and you came back with praise, and now I'm giving you the greater miracle, your very salvation. I'm healing all of you for all of eternity. Now, I don't think that's why this guy came back to praise Jesus, but I still think it teaches us that living miracle-ready means learning to bring praise back. And I wonder if for some of us, it's really not that simple. You are longing for the next miracle while you owe him praise for the last one. And that has become the obstacle. For some of us, I wonder if the last miracle we experienced wasn't the last miracle we experienced because we still haven't come back to praise him for the last miracle we experienced. No, Jesus moved and then we moved on like we do in our culture. And Jesus with disappointment says, no one came back to praise me for what I did? 
I worked in, you were begging me and you didn't come back to praise me. Now you post on social media talking about, hey, I got a promotion, y'all. And everyone says, congratulations. And you say, thanks. Wait a minute. Weren't you desperately begging me for a job three Christmases ago? And this is what you post? This has become the tone of your story? You didn't come back to praise me. Wait, weren't you praying you'd make the team? Now you're complaining because what? You're not getting as much playing time or you're, you're not getting as much love from or you're not getting as much whatever the case might be. I gave you a miracle and you haven't praised me for it. That's why you aren't seeing the greater miracles. You owe me praise. And you notice, Jesus is keeping tabs. In case you've ever wondered, by the way, wait, there were 10 of you. I know exactly how many of you I healed. And only one of you came. And according to the math, that's 10%. You know, he's very aware of what he's done in your life. And he's very aware when you came back to tell him, thank you for that thing that you did. We live in a culture of moving on. And Jesus loves it when we live in a lifestyle that brings praise back. And I'm just asking you, what is the smallest thing that he has done for you? Team, you guys can come out. What's the smallest thing that is done for you that, that, that you would have begged him to do two years ago? And he's done it and you've moved on, but you haven't come back and praised him for it. And I believe something powerful happens in our lives and something happens powerfully in this place. When we become the kind of people who praise him as passionately as we plead with him for the miracle. That we become the kind of people who are as generous with our hallelujahs as we are with our help me Jesuses. When we become the kind of people who say we want to come and fall at your feet because of what you've done, more often than we fall at your feet so you can do something for us. And I'm telling you right now, you study the scriptures and you will find that where people praise Jesus for the things that he does, he inhabits those praises and in those places starts to do great things. I wonder for some of us, part of the reason we're not seeing the miraculous is we're just an ungrateful people. We just don't thank him for the miracle that he did. And if you're not impressed with a miracle, then just think about what is the thing that he has done for me that I would have longed for him to do 10 years ago or three years ago. What's the thing he's done for me? That I never would have expected this would be my reality. What's the thing I prayed for now? He's done it, but I've not given him the kind of praise and the kind of props. Maybe because it's now gotten a little more difficult than I thought it would be. Because now walking to the priest is getting a little bit taxing. And the priest was kind of mean to me. And when the priest was mean, I'm like, that's it. I hate priests. And I completely forgot about Jesus and the fact that he healed me. For some of you, you have babies in your home and, and you would never have dreamed of the time when that would be your reality. And some of you, you have food in your fridge and two Christmases ago, you couldn't figure out like, how are we going to pay the bills? 
Some of you are going to hang out with people this Christmas that that last year you were not even speaking to. And I'm just telling you, bring praise back. There is power in bringing praise back. What might the Spirit be saying? You still owe Him a thanks for that. And it may be 10 years overdue. It may be two weeks overdue. It may be 30 minutes overdue. But bring him your praise. And that's it. That, that's, that's, that's how we're going to close the service. The band is going to lead us. And we're going to pour out our praise. And I love the line in this song that says, It's your breath in my lungs. So, And for some of you, you did not think you'd have breath in your lungs today. And you are breathing and that's cause enough to bring praise back to him. And something starts to happen when we become the kind of people who bring praise back to him. And I think he starts to break things and he starts to move in powerful ways because he knows we'll give him the glory he deserves. So man, I'd invite you stand or sit or kneel or whatever you need to do. But that as we sing this song, whether it's quietly in your heart or whether it's passionately and you shout when we come time to shout because because you want to give him your loudest shout not football this afternoon but i'd invite you hey let's bring praise back to him he is worthy of it so why don't we stand or sit or whatever posture you want to take but let's thank him not just now but let's live that way bringing praise back any excuse we can find bring praise back bring praise back bring praise back amen amen let's sing